If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Luke chapter 2, which we will wrap up this Sunday, Lord willing. (laughs) So Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to the end of the chapter, verse 52. Uh, When was the last time that you were astonished, amazed, or surprised, flabbergasted, whatever word you want to put in there? When was the last time that you were astonished? It may be, there's only maybe a few times in our lives where we are truly astonished at something, but there are little moments throughout days and weeks where we're kind of taken aback. We're not sure. It could be something as simple as maybe a a book that you're reading, a novel where there's a plot twist and you didn't expect that, or maybe a television show or a movie where all of a sudden you say, what? I cannot believe that that happened. You are astonished. Now, it could be everyday life. I can't believe that my coworker just said that. Um, <laughs> I can't believe my boss did that. I can't believe I have to do this at work or whatever it might be. Uh, sometimes for Andrew and I, our, our children astonish us. I, I'm astonished at, at their memories. Sometimes they remember things. They'll, they'll talk about something. Remember the time that we did this, that, or the other? And I think, yeah, now that you bring it up, I remember, but I would have never remembered that except that you brought it up, and they, I'm astonished by that. And actually here in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52, Jesus astonishes his parents as a 12-year-old child, and he gives them something to think on and to mull over, and as well he gives us something to think on and mull over. Uh, and I think it's this, that, that Jesus is presented in this passage as Jesus is obviously human, human. And astonishingly, he is God. Jesus is obviously human, and astonishingly, he is he is God. There is this amazing union in Jesus that we sh- that should leave us speechless and change us to the core. I don't want to take too much time introducing this. I, I just want to read the story and, and think on it together. So let's read this story in the early life of Jesus from Luke chapter two, and I'll begin in verse thirty-nine. It says. When they had performed everything according to the law, speaking of of Jesus' parents, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
that line there in verse 51, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. It's repeated also early on in, in chapter 2. It says that Luke had these reliable witnesses that he went to, and I read statements like that, and I just wonder if Luke didn't get to interview Mary, and that may be where he got this story from. That's, I don't know for sure, but it just makes me think that. But here in verses 39 through 40, we actually have kind of a bridge of sorts from the account that we looked at last week of Jesus just a little bit over a month old being dedicated in the temple, and now him at 12 years old, uh, a 12-year-old boy back in the temple, and now he is amongst the teachers. And these two verses, verses 39 and 40, kind of form this bridge. And actually they summarize all the intervening years of Jesus' childhood, which are often actually called the silent years, because we know very little about Jesus' childhood. Matthew tells us about the visit of the Magi, of the wise men, which did not occur at Jesus' birth, but occurred later, before he was, before he was two years old. Um, so that, that's an early event that we know about. We also know about the flight to Egypt to avoid uh, the decree of Herod to kill all children two years and under, meant to wipe out Jesus. And so he had been in Egypt. But that's about all we know from those really early years. Then we have this story when he's 12 years old, and then we don't know anything else until he's around age 30 and he appears uh, in his, uh, his formal ministry. So this is about all that we know, and here there is this, this summary statement. Here's what we know for sure. We know that he lived in Nazareth with his family. So he went from being born in Bethlehem, which is a pretty obscure town, to being, to living in Nazareth, which was an even more obscure town in Israel. And we know this, that he, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So this information for some people isn't enough. So there's a lot of stories that people uh, kind of made up about Jesus' childhood early on. They're apocryphal tales, because who can resist thinking about a child who, who is without sin? What was it like to be Jesus' parents? What was it like to be one of his brothers or sisters? It was funny at our small group uh, this past Wednesday, Trevor said, you know, how often did Jesus' brothers and sisters hear his parents say, why can't you be more like your older brother, you know? Um, I had a friend that I worked with for a while, and he said, you know, I bet Jesus always got picked first on the playground for the games because, I mean, he was God and he could do anything. That's that's the kind of apocryphal tales that people come up with. You know, there's stories of Jesus as a child that people wrote where, you know, a bird was found on the ground and Jesus picked up the bird and resurrected it to life, and it, and it flew off. And we could speculate more, but that kind of speculation always, almost always, leads to us being fruitless, and it's usually wrong. Um, so, in fact, here, Luke's description of Jesus in verse 40 there is remarkable in how unremarkable it is. Uh, notions of Jesus as some sort of child Superman fail to see that he was human, that, that he was a real person. And as much as he was unique, it's also true that I think if you went to Nazareth in those days, you probably couldn't pick him out on the streets. Um, as he played with his friends or as he walked to the synagogue with his family, you may have not known that, that was, there was something special about him. He did not have a halo around his head. Uh, he wore other colors than just white, probably. Um, so don't, don't let these notions take away the fact that, that Jesus was a human being. He was a child. And it's clear here it says that he grew and he became 
strong. I, I think from that in some ways that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't a sickly child. He was a child that grew uh, normally. He physically became bigger and stronger year after year, just as, as most children do. So he, he grew. Um, it also says that he didn't just grow uh, in strength, but he, he grew in knowledge. He was filled with wisdom. He learned. Jesus was not born with a fully formed brain, that he did not have to learn anything. Jesus learned how to read and to write and to add and to subtract. His mother had to teach him the alphabet and what his colors were. Um, he likely learned his father's trade, whether that was carpentry or some other um practice where he had to use his hands, Jesus learned this. And he, he didn't he wasn't born being able to wield a hammer perfectly. He had to learn how to do that. There's nothing sinful about that. That's just humanity and that's who Jesus was. He was a human being. But of all these above all these things that he learned, we can also say that he learned about the mighty deeds of God that are recorded in Scripture. We've already seen that his parents were, were godly. Uh, they they did everything that they were to do according to the law. And so, of course, they, they taught him as the Old Testament instructed them to do. They instructed Jesus in the Old Testament. So from the mouths of his parents and from the teachers in the synagogue, he came to know these stories. He learned the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the stories of the Israelites' escape from Egypt and their wanderings in the desert, and then the conquest of the land with Joshua. He heard about David and Solomon and the kings of Israel and the Judah. He heard the words of the prophets. He found wisdom from the Word of God. He participated in the Jewish feasts, and he learned about who God was by participating in these feasts. So Jesus grew. He grew physically, and he grew in knowledge. He learned, as most all children do. But it also says here that the favor of God was upon him. He was uniquely blessed by God. God's kindness and grace were towards him in a in a special way because he is God's beloved son with whom God is always well pleased. So as much as he was like other children, he was also very, very different, as the next story will show us. Because while he was human, he was also God, and he was specially favored by his father. Now before we move on to this next story of him in the in the temple, uh, I think that there is something instructive here. I don't think it's the main point of the passage, but I do think that there is something instructive here for those of us who are raising or who will one day raise children. Uh, I think there's wisdom here. As I think about my own children, I think about the, this short list. It, it kind of encapsulates what I want for my kids. Uh, it says that they, they, he grew in strength. Now, I want my kids to grow, to be strong, healthy kids, and I pray that God blesses them with good health. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do my best with my wife to make sure that they eat the right things, that they get outside when they're supposed to. I want to do my best to help them make these good choices. I want them to learn. I want them to grow in wisdom. I pray that my children love to read, that they, they enjoy math as much as they can, uh, that they appreciate culture, and my wife is helping them do this in a tremendous way. And I want them, I want them to learn God's Word. I want them to be able to tell of the wondrous deeds that God has done, to hear the stories of, of Scripture and to love the God of the Bible. And, and as we'll see later, you can, I can add a social dimension to this, that Jesus also grew in favor with others. I want my kids uh, to have good friends and to know how to be a good friend. I want them to, to know how to talk to adults, how to respect their elders. These are all good things. But often we, we stop there. 
we focus on our kids wanting them to be healthy and to be smart and to be socially normal. Um, and if that happens, then, then we're happy. It's easy to focus on their education and all things, but then to neglect their spiritual growth. Uh, it's easy to neglect times together as a family around God's Word. It's easy to, to make sure that they're fed well physically, but then never seek to feed their soul with God's Word. It's easy to give them time with their friends, but then not to help them see what a friend they have in Jesus. If you say, I don't know how to do that, then I would say something is better than nothing. We read children's Bibles. We, we memorize these catechism questions that we're going through as a, as a church. We read a chapter a day from the Bible. That's, that's what we do. We try to keep it pretty simple. But I want my kids to know that this is important. I'm not speaking as an expert. <laughs> Far from it. I'm speaking as a father who, who wants all these things. But above all, I, I pray that, that God's favor would be on my children. And in what way is God's favor most clearly on our children? On anyone. It's salvation. It's that God smiles on us and offers the gift of salvation. He offers forgiveness of sins. And so I pray that that, that would be true. That no matter how my, my, my kids grow, I, I want them to grow in the knowledge of God and that God's favor would be on them. You know, in all things we want to be like Jesus, right? What would Jesus do? In all things we want to be like Jesus. And even in these scarce details of his youth, he gives children an example to follow. And he gives us, as parents, a path to guide them along. So I would say to children, to young people, we've got a few here, be like Jesus. Be healthy. Be wise. Be good friends. But above all, seek to know who God is. Seek to have favor with God. And as parents, as we raise children, we want to raise well-rounded Kids, but children, but we also want children who value the favor and the blessing of God above anything else. That, that our kids would see, this is what we want most for you. If you grow in all these other areas, but you don't grow in your knowledge of who God is, then, then that's not as important. So I think that's a side note, but I do think it's instructive for us here in verse 40. But this is a broad description of Jesus's Childhood, but what follows is a is a specific incident that occurred when Jesus was 12 years old. So picture a 12 year old uh, in your mind that you might know. I'm not going to point out that Haley and Ian are about 12 years old because that might be embarrassing to them. So don't think about Haley and Ian because I don't want to embarrass them. But think about a 12 year old that that you might know. Um, we find in verse 42 that 12 year old Jesus travels to Jerusalem. With his family, it says um, there in verse 30, 42, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. This is for the feast of the Passover. Now, all Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem at three major feasts on the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, uh, Pentecost, and then probably most importantly, Passover. This was one of the, the high days or high feasts of the Jewish calendar. And this may have been Jesus' first trip. With his parents, he may not have come up all 12 years. Uh, this could be in, in in anticipation of his bar mitzvah at age 13, when he would become a true son of the covenant. Um, but it, it could be that he had been before. It's 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 hard to say really, but we know that he was here this time. So at 12 years old, Jesus travels with his family to Jerusalem. He would have traveled in a caravan, uh, probably with lots of other 
families, and, and they may have sung the Psalms of Ascent. You remember when we studied those almost two years ago now. But as they went for these feasts, they would sing these songs. And it says that they were there for the feast, probably seven or eight days for the feast, and nothing is really said in the text about that. It just says that when the feast was ended, they, they returned. Uh, often the 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 way that this caravan would go is that the the women would take the younger children and they would kind of lead the way probably because it was a little bit slower with the younger kids and then the men would take the older boys and bring them up they they would come uh, in the rear and it would seem that in the midst of the hustle and bustle of gathering everything and everyone up and leaving that Mary assumed that Jesus was with Joseph and, and Joseph assumed that. Jesus was with Mary, and in reality, the text tells us that he had stayed behind. You see what it says there? It says, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that he was left behind. Now, Mary and Joseph had forgotten about Jesus, but Jesus knew they had left, and he purposely remained in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Well, you can imagine the scene. At the end of a day of travel, they had come where they were going to stop for the night, and Mary and Joseph reconnect, and Joseph casually says, Hey, Mary, where's where's Jesus? And Mary's eyes get wide, and she says, What do you mean, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. <laughs> and Joseph says, What do you mean, with me? I thought he was with you. And so they start going around to their relatives, and they say, what, Have you seen Jesus? No, he's not with us. And then they go to their acquaintances. Have you seen Jesus? And then they, they probably go to perfect strangers and say, have you seen the little boy? He kind of looks like he's about 12 years old. He looks like this. And, and suddenly they realize that they have forgotten uh, their child. Um, it's somewhat amusing on paper, but I also know that sinking feeling of losing track of one of my children just for about 30 seconds. We're in Kroger, and maybe they walk down the aisle. and they're, they're, You know how when you're looking for someone and you, you, you're taking strides, and for some reason you just keep missing them on the aisle, and I'm wondering, where are my children? And I'm trying to think about how I'm going to explain to my wife that one of the children that she was in labor with for over 24 hours, I have lost this child. What are, you know, what are we going to do? And then I round the corner, and there they are smiling at me. And, oh, I feel better, you know. <laughs> it's probably payback for all the times that I hid in the coat racks when my mother would take me to department stores. Um, but nonetheless, w- what happens here is, is they, they realize that they've lost Jesus. Now, that's a few seconds, and it's terrifying. So where is my kid? Imagine that they've traveled for a full day away from Jerusalem, and they suddenly realize that their son is not with them. I'm sure they didn't sleep much that night. They woke up early the next day, but they had, remember, they had traveled for a full day, and now they had to travel back to Jerusalem another full day. They wouldn't be traveling at night because it would be dangerous, so they travel another full day get to Jerusalem, probably collapse in their beds and say, well, we'll have to just look for him in the morning. Uh, That's kind of where I think we get the three days. Verse 46 says, after three days, they found him in the temple. So they wake up on the third day and they begin searching for him. Now, I'd like to wonder, what is Jesus doing during these three days? Where was he staying at night? What was he doing during the day? I think we get a hint about what he was doing in this passage We're told that on uh, day three of being without their firstborn, that Mary and Joseph, they walk into the temple, and there he is, 12-year-old Jesus sitting amongst the teachers. Uh, He wasn't, uh, he didn't run to them with joy and say, I'm so glad that you're back, that you came for me. Uh, He wasn't crying in the corner because he was frightened or, 
or sad or scared. No, he was he was sitting amongst the teachers. And they were asking him questions, and he was asking them questions, just kind of like well, the way that we use these, these new catechism questions. It's just this learning process is going on with the teachers and Jesus, the 12-year-old boy. They're having these conversations back and forth. It says, after three days, verse 46, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And then verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. We're told that the teachers were asking these questions, and when Jesus gives the answers, they are astonished. They're, they're amazed. They're thinking, who, who is this child? The things that are coming out of his mouth, they, they, the reason that he has is just beyond belief. He's wise beyond his, his years. His parents, too, are amazed. It says, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, I don't know if they were amazed at what he was saying, or just the fact that he seemed so nonchalant about the fact that he had been gone for three days and they had been uh, searching for him. Uh, but Mary tells him that she doesn't seem she doesn't seem real happy, does she? Uh, it says in verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She says, why have you treated us like that? We've been searching all over for you for the past three days, and we've been worried sick. We're... And, and here you are, you're just sitting in the temple. Now, don't miss everything that, that, that's going on here. It's true, true to form. These are the first words of, of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Mary asks him a question, and what does Jesus respond with? He responds with two questions. This is a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. When questions are posed to him, he responds with questions. He responds with these questions. He says, he says why were you looking for me? What a, what an interesting question. Why were you looking for me? Well, it, doesn't it make sense that his parents would be looking for him because they had lost him? But then in the second question, he gives the reason why he is surprised that they were looking for him. He says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I think I think this is somewhat innocently Jesus is, is saying this. What do you mean you were looking for me? Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? I think if we made these questions a statement, it would look like this. There was no reason for you to look for me, Mom, Dad. You, you should have known that I would be in my father's house doing my father's business. Now, don't miss the use of, of father here. Mary says to Jesus, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, speaking of Joseph, Joseph have been searching for you in great distress. And what does Jesus say? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Mary doesn't look at Joseph and say, what do you mean? You knew about this, Joseph? No, why? because he's not talking about Joseph. He's talking about his heavenly father. He's talking about God the Father. I imagine that as Jesus grew in wisdom, and I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, we can discuss this afterwards. I don't want to uh, take away from Jesus' deity in any way. But I believe, I think that as Jesus was growing in wisdom, as he was thinking on these stories of the Old Testament that he was learning and the words of the prophets, and, and even as he was here, think about it, he just participated in the Passover meal, the Passover feast. And as he was in the midst of all this, that he began to see this theme of the coming Messiah, and he began to see the reality that he, in fact, was the Messiah that he was the promised one. I don't think there was any kind of crisis of belief in his mind as this 
Well, I think that if God's favor was on him and the scriptures were clear, that his mind is unclouded by original sin. And so he's reading these scriptures and he understands, he knows. He says, this is, this is me. He realizes that he is the promised one. He began to realize that while he was a human being residing in a human family, that God was his father and he had been sent by his father to accomplish something. He'd been sent by his father to be the savior of the world. And Jesus here, who is 12 years old, seems to assume that if he knows this, then his parents must know this. I mean, they had met the shepherds. They had heard Simeon's prophecy. Surely they would understand. Surely they would know that when they found out that he had not returned with them after the feast, that they would say, oh, he must be about his father's business. That We knew that this was coming. But in reality, they, they had no idea what was going They could not understand. That's what the phrase there says, verse, verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It, it, they could not grasp it in any way. They couldn't comprehend his actions. They had no idea what he was talking about when he says this. It is a startling statement. Didn't you know that I would, that I must be in my father's house? And they say, we have no idea what you are talking about, Jesus. It's time to go home. Now, do you see the force of this passage? Jesus is presented at the very beginning as, as very human. He's as human as any of us. He has this normal growth and development. And then that's, that's emphasized at the end of the passage too. In verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So these, these two things are saying Jesus is, he's human. And, and imagine two bookends on, on a bookshelf, okay? So it says it at the beginning and it says it at the end. And then in the middle, is this story of when Jesus was 12 years old. And this story tells us he was not just human. It makes it very clear that there was something unique going on with this child. So whatever else we can draw from this passage, and I think there are good things to draw, I think, again, this is the emphasis. Jesus is obviously human. And astonishingly, he is God. He is obviously human, and he is astonishingly God, it is an astonishing truth. And, and as we dissect this statement of Jesus, I, I've given you my best shot at what I think it, it means, but I also think that there is a sense in which we need to respond as verse 50, where we don't, we cannot fully comprehend what this saying means. It's, it's, it's too wonderful for us. But this is a core truth of our faith. Jesus is obviously human, and astonishingly, he is God. It's, it's the question that we're going over, right? This is our most recent question. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And this is made clear in this passage that he was human, but he was also very much God. This is a fact that I think the whole force of the infancy narrative, which is chapters 1 and 2, is, is seeking to show us that Jesus is obviously human. But astonishingly, he is also God. Now, now what happens here, he, he, Jesus responds to his mother's questions, and he, they say they, they don't understand the saying. And uh, you just imagine Jesus maybe looking up into the eyes of his mother and his father, and he realizes that what he assumed they knew, they don't have the foggiest notion about and his response isn't to say well 
I guess you'll figure it out. I'm going to stay here. No, he, he goes back to Nazareth. Look at verse 51. This is amazing. He says he, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Here's Jesus with his human parents, and he knows who he is. He's coming more to grips with it. He knows that God has revealed this to him, and yet he submits to his parents. For the next 18 years, he lives in Nazareth. He humbly obeys his earthly parents, also in obedience to his father. And it says that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. I think there's two things that we can draw from that that statement, that verse 51. Um, I get, this is kind of a side note, but I think it shows us that children and youth should submit to their parents. If we're to follow Jesus in all things, Jesus is a perfect example of submitting to and obeying his parents. If Jesus obeyed and submitted to his parents, shouldn't all children? I think yes. And there may be times where children say, my parents don't understand me. <laughs> and Jesus can, in a sense, relate to that, but he still submitted to them in obedience to his Father. But, of course, Jesus wasn't simply a good son. He was God himself. And in his kindness and his understanding, it would seem that Jesus understood that this was difficult for Joseph and Mary to grasp, and so he allows his parents time to come to grips with this, He gives Mary the opportunity to treasure, to ponder these things in her heart, to try to understand what this means, and that through the working of the Holy Spirit that she would come to see who her son is, that he's not just her son, but that he is God in the flesh, that he has come to be the Savior of the world. So as Luke, throughout these first two chapters, has presented us with all this reliable information, it could be that the reality has not really sunk down into your mind and heart. And I think that Jesus can see that confusion. He understands that this is difficult. This is not the easiest thing in the world to understand. God is, is patient, but I pray that he would open our eyes. If you do not understand this, that he would open your eyes to the truth that, that Jesus is not simply an ordinary man. He's just not a good man or a teacher that we should follow, but that he was God and that he came to save us from our enemies, to make us members of his kingdom through his death and resurrection, to offer us salvation. I think we need to remember this as we talk to people. You know, sometimes become, we become very accustomed to the thought that Jesus was God and man, that he was part of the Trinity. That's a difficult thought for people sometimes. And I think we need to, to, as we say it, that some people might look at us with that blank stare that maybe Mary and Joseph looked at Jesus with and said, what are you talking about? We need to understand that, and, and we need to not be surprised, but we also not, need not forsake people, but to continue to serve, to continue to live with them, help them mull over these things, and pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal that truth. And then also, I don't think we should look at this and say, well, I understand what it means, because I'm so smart. But rather we should see that if we have come to understand this, who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that's not a belief that we should hold in pride. It's not something that we've discovered on our own, but it is, as was revealed to Peter, it's revealed by the Father. Jesus is obviously human, but astonishingly he is God. And if we accept that, it's because God has opened our eyes to see that truth. As I said, this text begins, or ends much like it began with this verse, and Jesus increased in wisdom 
and in stature and in favor with God. But then there's this addition, and man. At the beginning it just says that he grew in, he, that God's favor was upon him. But here it says that he also grew in favor with man. It's interesting to, to note that that's, that's added here. I think people began to take notice of this child. They, they liked being around him. They enjoyed his company. They, they learned from his wisdom. But there's an irony here. In chapter 3, we're going to take off again with John the Baptist, but there's no, he's, he's now calling people to, from the wilderness to come to repentance. And this is the beginning of Jesus' formal ministry years. And, and while in that time period he was favored by many, the favor of man was upon him. What else happened? He was despised. He was rejected by men. You know, I like to, I wonder if even some of the teachers that he sat with that day when he was 12 years old were the same ones who heard what he was saying when he's around 30 years old and said, we've got to do something about this guy. He's causing an uprising. He's teaching things that are contrary to what we are saying. What is it that caused Jesus to fall out of favor with man. In fact, isn't it that he was about his father's business? That, that people couldn't understand what he was doing or saying or who he really was? And so his favor with, with people plummets. Why? Because he comes out and he says, God is my father. He's accused of blasphemy because of, of the mission that God has put him on. And it gets so bad that he is killed on a cross as a criminal. His favor did not last, his favor with men did not last through his entire life. Yet, it's, it's in his death, when he is on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. What is finished? What was finished in part is what he began at 12 years old. The mission of his father. I'm about my father's work. What is the work that Jesus had, that God had sent Jesus to accomplish? Scripture tells us that the father sent the son to be the Savior of the world. And Jesus, the man who was God and is God, accomplishes redemption by dying in our place on the cross and rising from the dead. He falls out of favor with man because he is about his Father's business. And people can't understand who he is. But he saves the world by laying down his life so that all who would come in repentance and faith may receive the forgiveness of sins and know him as Father. Jesus is obviously human, but astonishingly, he is God. I don't want us to, we shouldn't get over who Jesus is. And as we look at this child, we see the humanity and the deity so, so interwoven. We should be astonished. We should also recognize that he is about his father's business and that his, he has completed what his father sent him to do. He has saved his, the, the ones that the father has given him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross. Lord, that you did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but you made yourself of no reputation, took upon the form of a servant, and became obedient, obedient to your Father's plan, obedient to the business that you had sent, been sent to do. Lord, we thank you that you are 100% God, 100% man. Lord, we can say that 
and yet our minds cannot fully grasp it. But we know that you have done this. You have humbled yourself so that you might bring salvation to us. Lord, we thank you that it is finished, that the task that you were sent to do was accomplished, or that you were obedient through your whole life, even to the point of submitting to your earthly parents and obeying them. Lord, all the way to fulfilling all righteousness. And because of you now, we can have a relationship we can call God our Father. Lord, all these things are amazing. pray that we would be astonished at who you are, astonished at the truth of the gospel, astonished that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that we have come to know it. Lord, forgive us for our pride, for thinking that we deserve it or thinking that we came to this on our own accord. Help us to recognize, Lord, that unless you had revealed it to us, we would be dead and lost in our sins. But we thank you for the salvation that you've given us in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.